It's good to see everyone, and I want to welcome our live stream uh, audience tonight that's listening in from home, and maybe some of you from uh, another place, maybe it's a restaurant, maybe it's work, but uh, I hope you're not driving on the road while you're watching. Um, <laughs> I guess it's okay for your, your passenger to, to watch it, but uh, yeah, keep your eyes on the road. Uh, tonight we continue in our study in Revelation. I'm excited about chapter 14 that we'll be in. So if you have a Bible, you're going to turn to Revelation 14. I came in tonight and I spoke with John Bloom. John was baptized a week ago on Sunday. And uh, I was just thinking about what happened right before, you know, we had this wonderful beach baptism, but the water, the, the waves were pretty strong and the current was strong. And so we actually had to time taking people down in the water when the wave would come in and uh, it would raise the tide enough that we could baptize them. And so it was working with God's natural creation in order to baptize. And John is standing there, and he's not a little guy. He's a big guy, okay? And he, so he's standing, and the water, when he's standing there, is maybe knee, up to his kneecap. And, and I said, John, get ready. And he goes, he goes we're going to do it right here? And he's looking like this at the water only kneecap high. And then a wave came in, of course, and raised it up, you know, high enough that we were able to to take him back in the water. But I was saying to Scott and John earlier that when you are baptized at Bureau Bible Fellowship, it is a work of faith. <laughs> you better execute faith when you're baptized by our church. Amen. Okay. None of this, none of this lakeside water stuff, okay? We go for hurricane weather at the beach. That, we're, we're those kind of folks. We're, we're walking by faith. Okay. Well, let's begin tonight with prayer. Lord, as we gather, and what a blessing it is to gather as the body of Christ, and when we use that term, body of Christ, we're not just talking about people who belong to our local fellowship. We're talking about the body of Christ, the greater body, those who might even belong to another church, but maybe they're listening in, maybe they've attended tonight. And because we are brothers and sisters in Christ, what we have in common is our great salvation, that we've been called out of darkness into the marvelous light of Christ. And now we share together. We can, we can travel to another state and run into a Christian brother or sister, and it's like coming to family. And, and we can have fellowship over the things that matter most in this life, and that is our relationship with God. So tonight, we are blessed by those listening in and blessed by those who are present, Lord, that we could study your word. Open our eyes to see what you have for us and that we would lead tonight filled, encouraged, strengthened, and challenged. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight as we focus on Revelation 14, we need to see it in context of chapter 12 and 13 as well. If you remember back a few weeks ago, and it's been more than a few because for the last three weeks we haven't had Bible study. We've, we've focused on a wonderful teaching by uh, Paul Westcott on biblical voting, and then we had a, a sacred assembly last week. I hope you came. I, what a blessing that was for our church body to be praying together. I, I think probably our staff has not had a lengthy discussion over this, but I, I do believe uh, we're going to have that more often, at least twice a year, probably four times a year. We talked in staff meeting maybe three times on a Thursday night throughout the year, and then once even on a Sunday morning have a sacred assembly every year. So I'm excited about that. Uh, but we talked weeks ago, we were in chapter 12, <clears throat> and, and in chapter 12, 
we looked at the first five figures that show up in the tribulation, the great tribulation. The first was the woman who represented Israel. The second was the dragon who represented Satan himself. The third was a male child referring to Jesus. The fourth was the angel Michael, who's the head of the angelic host. And the fifth in chapter 12 was the offspring of the woman. And that represents the Gentiles who come to faith during the tribulation. There's not just Jews who are coming to Christ, but Gentiles who are coming to faith in Christ. Then in chapter 13, the last chapter we studied, in review, we focused on uh, two more figures. One is uh, the beast out of the sea, and that represented the Antichrist. And then the beast out of the earth, which represented the false prophet. Now, before we get started in chapter 14, let me just say in review of last chapter 13, we need to keep in mind that these two beasts, the one that comes out of the sea, the one that comes uh, from out of the earth, these are merely satanic imitations. Satan does not possess the ability to create. He is not equal to God. Some people have that there's God and there's Satan, and they're like this, and they're foes to each other, and in the end they're going to have a big battle against each other. Well, they are foes, there will be a battle, but never has it been God-Satan. It's God-Creator, Satan the created. You don't put them on the same level. They're not on the same level. Satan does not have the ability to create anything. Only God can create. So what does Satan do? Since he can't create, he imitates. And what you have in the beast out of the sea, which is the Antichrist, and the beast out of the earth, which is the false prophet, you have a false presentation by Satan of a false Christ. The Antichrist is a false Christ. And a false John the Baptist, the forerunner, who is the prophet. Okay? This, this false prophet. Who will promote, they're going to promote, these two false figures are going to promote a false god, who is Satan. So just as there is a holy trinity, there is an unholy trinity, in a sense. The only thing is, and please, if you don't get anything else, theologically get this. Here's God the Father, here's Satan. He is not even in the same, there's no, he's a created being. He's like you and I, created by the Father, okay? Always remember that. Don't ever think that he can possibly overcome God. He cannot. It's an impossibility. Okay? Now, rather than spend our time obsessing with fear and interest about the imitations that Satan is presenting in the end, I think we're much better served to spend our time focusing on the, the, the genuine, the authentic, who is Jesus Christ. Don't, don't spend all your time worrying about Antichrist. Don't spend all your time studying Antichrist. If you're going to study, study the real. Study Christ himself. Amen? Amen? Now, we are going through this study, so we're going to look at the Antichrist. But again, don't let it eat you up or take control of your time and, your, and consume your study. Okay? Verse 1 of chapter 14, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. 
So in chapter 7, if you go all the way back to chapter 7, we read of the 12,000 Jews from each of the 12 tribes of Israel who will go throughout the whole world preaching the gospel during the tribulation. Although they will be targets of Antichrist, the Antichrist will try to take them out, will try to uh, you know, remove them. Uh, here in the tribulation, we don't see a record here in chapter 14 of 139,999 because one was taken out. We see a record of 144,000. Everyone that has the name of God, who's marked by God to proclaim the message of Christ during the tribulation, will survive it. <laughs> God has put His mark on them. God is protecting them just as He's put His mark on you through the Holy Spirit, a guarantee of a pledge that He's made to you. You will be with Him in heaven. And so during the tribulation, the 144,000 have nothing to fear. They stand firm, even though they are, being, they are being attacked by the enemy. The persecution is more severe than at any other time in history. And yet they're going to survive it. Why? Because God is greater than Satan. God is sovereign. God has everything under His command and under His control. And when He says, this is going to survive, there ain't no way it can be taken out. Amen? In verse 2, And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were signing, or singing I'm sorry, a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. This is a wonderful scripture verse. First of all, notice he heard the voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. Who would that be? Christ himself. It's Christ himself. Like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. Now the 144,000 are back with the Lord, redeemed from living on the earth, fulfilling their mission on the earth of proclaiming the gospel of Christ. And God puts in their mouth a new song. And nobody else in heaven can sing that song. This is just a powerful passage to try to get the, 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 the fullness of it. I don't know that we can. But why could no one else sing the song? Because they alone went through the testing and tribulation and yet they, they maintained their integrity. So they alone could sing of what they were able to observe the Father do on their behalf in the time of tribulation. Every one of us, listen church, every one of us goes through our own time of testing, our own time of problem, uh, trial, circumstance, tribulation. We all go through. God's intention is that the trial would produce in you and in me a new song. There's never a time that you're to go through a time of testing in this world on this side of eternity that a new song should not come out of your mouth as you come out of it. You should never be the same person after the time of testing as before. Because God is always at work in us. It's called sanctification. It's the process whereby the Holy Spirit 
is daily, hourly, second by second, conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. And so you have a new song when you come out of your trial. If you don't come out of the trial with a new song, something's amiss because that's always God's purpose in it. Always. They were in a damp, dark dungeon in stock and chain and without even a crust of old bread to eat. Yet what they were doing was amazing. They were singing. And at midnight, which is the darkest hour, Paul and Silas sang. They weren't singing to try to get God to do something for them. They were singing simply because the Lord was with them. They had peace in prison. Some might complain that their experience is far different. Well, if you only were in my marriage... If you only were in my job, putting up with what I have to deal with, the persecution for being a Christian, if you were only carrying my body and the health concerns that I have, because it's like I'm being locked up in my own prison. We can all face prison sentences on this earth in certain ways. But even in prison... God is trying to give you a new song. He will. You, everybody here knows of somebody who's gone through a ton, a lot more than you have, and yet they came out singing. They came out praising God, rejoicing over the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God. What do you mean the faithfulness of God? You suffered the whole time. There was nothing joyful about it. Oh, but my God is faithful. He taught me so much while I was in that prison. You come out different than when you went in. So what keeps us from this new song? Why is it that not everybody who faces a trial comes out better? Why do some come out bitter? I'm going to use a word that is very familiar to all of us. And it is usually connected to uh, the reason why God is not bringing you out with a new song. It is the word sympathy. It's the word sympathy. I can neither choose to go through my challenge with a symphony in my heart, a symphony in my heart, or I can go through the challenge to get sympathy from people. To go through the challenge with symphony in my heart is to do it God's way, to stay close to God. God is continually trying to build out of your life a sound like that of a symphony. It's beautiful. You know, what makes a symphony so beautiful? What is it? Well, you're talking about a variety of instruments, numerous instruments, playing different elements of a song, all coming together in this beautiful, harmonic way. It has this depth that you can't get from one or three or five instruments playing together. It's a symphony. God is saying, I am trying to take your messed up, broken down, shattered, splintered, crushed, annihilated life. And if you'll turn to me, I will give you a new song and it will sound like a symphony. I'll make all things come together. They'll fit. 
And as you walk away from that trial, people look at you, they see and hear a symphony coming out of your life. I believe that. I believe the Bible proves that that's true. I can either choose to go through my life with a symphony in my heart which comes from the Lord, or I can choose to get sympathy from people. If I choose to tap into sympathy, it will always be less than what God can provide. Because the underlying unspoken implication of sympathy is this idea, that what's happening in your life right now is beyond God's control. When you settle with sympathy, you're giving in to the idea, God can't handle this one. Therefore, we need to have sympathy on you. God, help us to ever get to a place where we would choose sympathy over a new song that God has for us. So the God who has promised not only to strengthen you in the trial, but walk, walk with you all the way through it, He can't handle that problem? It's too big for Him? It's beyond His ability? Listen, Christian. God is totally, absolutely, completely faithful to meet us in, our, in every trial, in every situation. Don't let His plan get short-circuited by people who want to feel sorry for you. Now, I'm not saying that in a moment when you receive bad news, difficult news, there's nothing wrong in that moment to be comforted by friends. That's biblical. It's, there's nothing wrong with that. But when you choose to live in sympathy, that I'm just going to feed off of what everybody else sees as a pitiful situation that I'm in, and now I talk more and more and more about my pitiful situation. Why? So I can get more and more and more sympathy. And you don't even realize it, but what you're doing, you're short-circuiting the work that God wants to do in you, which is give you a new song. If there's ever been a picture of sympathy that's gone sideways, it's the welfare system that was created in our country to take care of the poor. We're going to take care of you. And what that did was begin to initiate in the minds of many Americans, I don't need to trust God because my government will provide for me. That is the outcome of sympathy. It's the outcome. It has crippled millions upon millions of people that have lived in our country who now live in this society. It's robbed real people of God's strength and of God's purpose for their lives to keep them moving forward with Him, to give them a new song, to raise them up out of whatever trial, tribulation they faced. You say, but what about the person who never gets out of it? They live in it their whole life. They've never had a break. They've never been able to rise up. Do you think that we're the first generation that's experienced that? Do you not think that there have been throughout history faithful, faithful Christians who never saw an end to the persecution? Those who were raised in communist countries that did not tolerate and do not to this day tolerate Christianity? But yet they have a song? Even in the midst of their life trial, they still sing, and it's a beautiful symphony. 
I can remember in my mind right now going, being down in Tegucigalpa, the capital city of Honduras, meeting there with Pastor Alfredo before service, praying in the back room and coming out and coming into the, uh, the worship center. Their worship center, talk about poor, their worship center, very large steel walls, warehouse kind of a facility with no roof. They only took an old, old circus tent and they covered up the ceiling with circus tent. That had holes all over the place. <laughs> and guess what happened? As the revival is starting, the rain started pouring down. A deluge. I mean, if you think about some of the days of rain that we've had this summer, and we've had a few days of a deluge, that's what it was like. I'm not making that up. Those who were with me on that trip will verify that. It's a deluge. And I'm wondering, oh, man, see, 99% of their people walk to church. And they walk miles to church. And I'm thinking, church is done. And I'm sitting up front, and there's pitter-patter on the seat next to me, you know, and I kind of slide a little bit further away so it's not hitting me. And I'm thinking, man, I don't know if I'm going to be able to protect my Bible in this, you know. And you know, I'm looking at the stage where I'm going to preach. Am I going to be able to... And the Lord said, why don't you lay your Bible down and get up and turn around and go to the back of the room? And I did. And I started watching as people are coming in out of this deluge. A mother comes in with a little baby, and she has it covered the best she can and comes in and lifts her eyes. And in America, in that situation, what would they say? Oh, my goodness, I can't believe this. What's going on? There, in that country, she lifts her eyes with the biggest smile, so thankful, so happy to go to church in a deluge. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you something. I watched that room fill up. It was max capacity in a rainstorm. That was a symphony. That's what we should choose. We should choose to go with God. Only God can provide for those who are facing the trials of life. God is your comfort. God is your deliverer. God is your strength. God is your Savior. There is no other Savior. There is no other deliverer. There is no other healer in this world. You trust the one true God. Instead of saying God is good, he is for, He's for me. I'm going to teach me. He's going to teach me through the pain of this life and give me a new song. Instead, what we see people saying, man, I just don't think I can make it. This is so unfair. Where is God when I need him? I feel all alone, and the whole time, people are surrounding. Oh, 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 I'm so sorry. In a moment, there's nothing wrong with that. But you can't live there. Amen. you got to pick up, and you got to go with God. Amen? Amen? All right. Let's keep moving. Isn't it interesting how the Word of God speaks to us? It's tempting to let people feel sorry for us, but don't do it. Don't, let the, don't take that bait. Don't succumb to sympathy. If you do, it'll put you... It, really what it does, it puts God in a bad light. For a Christian to walk around sinking, seeking sympathy instead of trusting the Lord with their problems. Amen. Verse 4. You say, well, yeah, but you know, this could take her life. She's on the ver This could take her life. 
She's about to go to heaven. Praise God. You don't lose with God. It's amazing how we place emphasis on flesh instead of spirit. Now, this is interesting. Verse 4, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. In that tribulation, which is going to, become, is going to be one of the greatest outpourings of salvation on the face of the earth, it will be greater than anything we've seen prior. These 144,000 are seen as the first fruits of God bringing in because all the people that get saved through them as they spread across the earth proclaiming the message of God. And it says that they did not defile themselves. These 144,000 are so blessed. They speak with authority. They have the Lord on their minds constantly. They have a song in their heart personally. They see the Lamb's directives very clearly. It's all built and based on the fact that they are people of, of purity. If you want to make it through life and through the trials of life and the shadows that come over, the clouds that blow in, and you're thinking, man, from day to day it gets so confusing and it's so hard, you remain pure. As you remain pure before God, keeping God as your, as your center of focus, He will bring you through all that. They are proof of that. 144,000 made it through. Over the years, I've noticed that when people go through trials and tribulations, one of, one of two things inevitably happens. Either their faith ignites and burns bright, or their faith is quenched and it burns out. I've seen it. Because their faith, the ones that burn out, their faith was never strong to begin with. In fact, it probably wasn't even a saving faith. It's a faith. Look, anybody can say they believe in God. Demons even say that in the Bible. But a saving faith is different. A saving faith that goes through trials and tribulations burns brighter and brighter and brighter. Those who are only know God from a distance, who really have not surrendered, they hold on to things of their own. They have fleshly desire over God's desire. And now what happens when pressure comes? They, they give up. They walk away. Standing near the fire, he couldn't believe what was happening. He had left his business. He left his family. He left everything. And he was following the rabbi from Galilee. And now after three years, the one he was looking to, believing in, depending on, had placed his hope in was about to be carried off and put on a cross and die. When asked if he was a disciple of Jesus, Peter swore, I don't even know him. And what followed was the flame of Peter's faith turning to embers, barely alive. Thank God, God refueled Peter. Amen? <laughs> but in that moment, mm -mm. how about the king that declared, if you don't bow down to my idol, you'll be cast into a fiery furnace. And their response, so be it, said three Hebrew boys. <laughs> Interesting. God is able to deliver us, and if he chooses not to deliver us, we still will not bow down. 
and worship your idol. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace where rather than burning out, their faith burned brighter as they walked through their trial unharmed in the presence of God. Burning out or burning bright, which will it be? Here in Revelation, God is being given, or John is being given a message from God to go back to the seven churches in a time when now the temple in Jerusalem is gone. The Romans have come in and completely annihilated the temple. They've, they've, they've just flattened it. They are still under Roman captivity in terms of the Roman rules and governance. And they're being persecuted constantly. They were burned as streetlights in Rome. Christians set in pitch, alive, put up on a pole, lining the streets leading into Rome, and lit at night, burning alive as a streetlight. They were fed to lions, listen, by the thousands. And so God speaks to John in this vision. He lets John see a picture. And in this picture, he allows John to see that 144,000 Jews make it through the tribulation unscathed. They remain faithful to God. They remain pure in their heart. And God restores them and brings them through. Here in verses 1 through 5, we find all 144,000 standing with the Lord on Mount Zion. In that picture, that's where they were at. They have endured the greatest tribulation that has come to mankind without, without exception. And they never collapsed. They never caved in. They never gave up. How is that? How do we make it through our time of tribulation, which is far less than what the 144,000 will face? And come through. I, be, I believe the answer is crucial to us because Jesus said in this world, all of us will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. When we're going through the most difficult, darkest hour of life, we're going to be tempted to think that because the Lord hasn't changed our circumstance, He's not removed me from the fire, we're, just, we're now justified to go and let me just have a few brewskis down there at the Kilted Mermaid. Let me just go and log on to this porn site for a few minutes and get at least a little bit of pleasure in this terrible situation I'm in. Let me start dating this unbeliever. And all that does is carry you further from the plan and purpose of God in your life. No longer are you a new song. Now you're nothing but an old headache and everybody can see it. You're wearing it out on your sleeve, and there's no representation from God. It's always when the trial is heaviest that the pressure is greatest to bow before the idol and say, it's okay if I get time off with my problem and just go engage in this other activity. Why? Because I'm a Christian and God will forgive me. You missed the whole point. The point is, as a believer, we're to walk in purity. That's what the song produces in us. Something that's a symphony to the ears and the eyes of others around us. But wait a minute. I want you to see this. 144,000 remain pure. 
They did not give in to the immorality of their day. And believe me, in the tribulation period, great, great immorality. We're living today in dark times. How many of you would say yes to that? Isn't that true? The temptations are intense. It'd be so easy to let up and give in to the temptation. Listen, church, as a believer, remain true to the one true God. Live a life of purity. I didn't say you're perfect. Purity doesn't mean perfection. Purity means my heart is leaning towards God. It's not leaning towards the things of this world. There's the difference. As a result, you'll have peace of mind continually. Why? Because Isaiah 26 verse 3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You want to live a life of purity? Make sure that you keep your mind on Christ and remember that you can trust him. In every situation, you can trust him. Never once will God forsake you. He'll never leave you. He will, he will strengthen you. He will prepare you for the battles that you'll face in your life. That's why Paul says in Romans 16, 19, For your obedience is known to all. Speaking of the Christians, the Jews, who had turned to Christ. He's saying, your obedience to God, everybody can see it. And he goes further, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Be wise. Remain innocent. When everyone else is laughing at the off-color joke, you be wise. Walk away. Don't entertain it. Let people see and hear a symphony coming from your life. Verse 6, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on the earth. This is happening during the tribulation. God is still reaching out with the gospel to those who are lost on the earth. An angel now flying about in the air and the, their message is proclaiming the eternal gospel. I love that phrase, eternal gospel, to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. Does that mean that God's going to leave somebody out? Absolutely not. The message of the gospel goes everywhere. Did you hear that? To every nation, every tribe, every language, every people. The 144,000 serve as the foot soldiers for God. They're His infantry. And then after the foot soldiers go up to heaven, then it says here in, in, in verse 6, now God's going to send the air support. Now He's got angels flying through the air proclaiming the gospel. I mean, God's got a full-on attack, man. He knows what He's doing. What a great strategist. What a, what a commander. And, and verse 6b, to every nation and tribe and language and people, Jesus declared that the end of the world as we know it will come after the gospel of the kingdom is preached to the entire world. That's in the Bible. Consequently, listen, you will hear people say, we've got to get out, out there and preach to every nation so that the Lord can come to rapture the church. That somehow we've got to get the word out to everybody so that then the rapture can happen. Not true. The Lord can rapture the church tonight. And still, through the angels and through the 144,000 and the two witnesses, he will, he will continue to share the gospel of Christ. 
that end doesn't come until right before Christ returns. Verse 7, And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. I want to think about that for just a second with you. Fear God and give Him glory. This is what the angel will tell the whole world to do. This is not just to Christians. In fact, the Christians, the church is gone. Now that all you have on the earth are the 144,000, the two witnesses. Hey, who's he speaking to here? He's speaking to the world. What's he saying to the world? Fear God and give him glory. That is powerful to me. So basically what he's saying is you can either give God glory and worship him willingly in this life, or you can resist him in this life, and you will be compelled to give him glory in the life to come. What is the life to come for those who choose not to give God glory in this life? Eternity in hell, but they're still living. Never do they die. Never is there an ending. It's not a season that they're going to be in hell, and then they get to go to heaven. For all eternity, Jesus, was the, Jesus spoke of the eternality of heaven many times. And then he also, in the same sentence, speaks of the eternality of hell. He doesn't mean eternal in the heaven sense to mean one thing and eternal in the hell sense to mean something different. They're the same. If there's going to be an eternity in heaven, there is going to be an eternity in hell. That's the way it is. Here's an angel proclaiming to all the lost on the earth, you need to fear God and give Him glory. Do it. Do it while you can. What Scripture is certain of is that one day all will give glory to God. You don't believe that? Write it down, Philippians chapter 2, verse 9 through 11. You can turn there if you'd like, but I'll just read it for you. Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore, Paul said, God has highly exalted Him. He's speaking of Christ here, Christ Jesus. And bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. What's under the earth? Hell. Everybody in hell, listen, they will fall to their knees before Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 11, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now listen. To the glory of God the Father. The angel saying in, in the, in the, during the Great Tribulation, as he's flying around the earth, he's proclaiming, he's declaring, you need to fear God, you need to bring glory to God. Some are going to turn to God and be saved and bring glory on this side of eternity. Others are going to resist that. They don't want to give God glory. They hate God. They want to be their own God, they, or they've got another God that they worship. And they go, to, they die, and they end up in hell. And it says, and they will, with their mouth and with their knee, they're going to confess Jesus is Lord. They're going to bow before Him, and they're going to give glory to God from hell. Nobody gets away from it. Nobody. And worship Him who had made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water, verse 7b. That passage puts a conclusive end to the evolution creation debate. 
verse 8, another angel, a second followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. We'll have more of a study on Babylon when we come to chapter 17. But for right now, it's enough to say that it represents mankind in organized rebellion against God. And there's many ways, <clears throat> excuse me, take a drink here. Now I'm good for another hour. Um, there are many ways that Babylon has organized itself. She has organized in the political arena. She's organized in the media. She's organized in world religions. And she's leading the people of this earth into idol worship in those categories and many others. Okay? One thing's for sure, Babylon has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, her sexual immorality. When we're told that Babylon has led all nations into sexual immorality, the main idea is spiritual fornication, the worship of other gods. That's what that really refers to, the worship of other gods. Now let's look at verse 9. We'll come back again in chapter 17 and deal more with Babylon. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, with a loud voice. We don't know if it was crying. doesn't say that, so we can't, we can't say that it, that's true. But it was a loud voice. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand. I want you to see that. Worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand. That's a polysyndeton. And that polysyndeton means that it's a continuation all the way from worshiping the beast, worshiping the image, receiving a mark on the forehead. It's a continuation. It's not one or the other. A person who's willing, listen, a person who is willing to worship the beast will uh, worship that image and will receive a mark. You can't do half of it. You're going to go all the way with it. On the positive, let me give you another polysyndeton that's in the Bible. It's where Abraham takes Isaac up on the mountain to sacrifice him. And it says that Abraham, when God told him what to do, the next day he rose and he took his son and he took uh, wood and he put them on the... And, 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 and. This is why Abraham is known as the father of faith in Hebrews 11. Because he did not hesitate. He did in a continual fashion everything necessary to offer his son as a, as a sacrifice to God. Here on this sense, it's a negative polysyndeton. Okay? So here's, here's what I'm saying to you. This is a warning of the coming judgment of God. Okay? Understand that the connection between worshiping the beast and his image and receiving his mark on the forehead or on the hand. No one will accidentally take the mark of the beast. Nobody. Okay? Because you can't accidentally worship the beast. Worship is an act of your imputed will. You choose to do that. And when you choose to do that, you will also do the other things. You'll worship the image and you'll worship or you'll uh, take the mark. 
Okay, verse 10, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Anybody who takes that, uh, that mark of the beast, who worships uh, the beast, listen, <laughs> They are facing eternal damnation. The judgment of God, the wrath of God is upon them. Those who suggest that hell is not a literal place or that it won't last for eternity, they've never read the Bible. Okay? In Isaiah chapter 20, God leads His prophet to do something that you would never expect God would do in the Bible. This is one of those passages that if you just look at it on the surface level, you're not going to get it. And you're going to be a little bit upset and think, that's just terrible. But when you understand the character of God and the length that God is willing to go in order to reach the lost, because He's a loving God, He's a compassionate God, He's a merciful God, He's a gracious God, then you'll understand the passage. But in Isaiah 20, God leads His prophet to do something that that is just peculiar. Because the sins of the people are so great when Isaiah was a prophet, God had already decided He was going to send the Assyrians to them and haul them off in bondage. If you remember, the tribes in the north are going to be hauled off by the Assyrians into captivity. The tribes in the south, the two tribes in the south, are going to be hauled off by the who? Babylonians for, for how long? Remember how long? A generation, really. Okay? For a generation, they're going to be hauled off into captivity. And, and so, so here's what God tells the prophet to do because the people have hardened their hearts. They're not listening to the message of the prophet, this warning of the prophet that's speaking of judgment to come. And so God said to Isaiah, who, by the way, is this eloquent orator. Of all the prophets, Isaiah, probably in, by scholars, is viewed as he's the orator, he's the, you know, the very highly intelligent, uh, he's the educated one. Okay, so here's this sharp guy. And, and, God, and, by, and the stakes are really high here in this situation. So God tells this wonderful prophet to take off his sandals and remove his robe. And for the next three years, walk to and fro naked before the people. Because I want them to see ahead of time what it's going to be like for them as the Syrians come and strip them, men, women, and children, and haul them across the wilderness in captivity. If we can't get their attention with the word, let me give a visible evidence, a picture of what's to come. Think about that. The people were so calloused, they wouldn't heed the message. So God uses this bold move to get their attention and illustrate the facts that as captives of Assyria, they're going to suffer greatly. Well, listen, Christian, hear me tonight. We are living in crucial times right now. I'm not just talking about because it's the week of the election. I'm not, that's not what I'm talking about. Take the election off the table for a second. Think beyond the election. 
We live in a very dark, fallen world right now. People are dying every day, going to hell because they've not received the message of Christ. And there are those who we have failed to speak to. You have relatives. You have friends. You have acquaintances at work. Those people, unless the gospel is presented to them, they will die and go to hell. And these are your friends. These are your family members. God is saying to you and I in our day, while He's not asking us to physically bear ourselves, He is asking us to bear our souls to those that we love and those that we meet, to bear the naked truth of the gospel to them. Stop hiding the gospel. Stop cloaking the gospel. Stop dressing the gospel up in some garment that makes it feel easier for you to share. Do you know how hard it would have been for Isaiah, this man of God, highly intelligent, educated, a tremendous orator, to take off everything and walk naked? I want you to think about that. The price that he was willing to pay to obey God, to get the message to God's people. We have the same call, not physical bareness, spiritual bareness. Let people see that you're a believer. Communicate the gospel with them. Here in Revelation, the angels preach with a loud voice, Don't take the mark. You'll be tormented forever. This is how... This, is, this has to be our message to the world. Repent of your sins. Turn and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So now we go to verse 12. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints, or in some versions, the patience of the saints, who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Christ. During the tribulation, there are going to be people who come to Christ, and as they come to Christ, they come under very heavy persecution, and they are going to be patient saints. They're going to endure the, the persecution, and they're going to remain faithful to God. We certainly know the 144,000 fit that, that, uh, that description. Verse 13, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, because or blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. That is specifically speaking, even though we can use it for any saint, we should be able to use it for any saint who has done works for Christ on the earth. I don't mean works to save them. I mean works to fulfill God's purpose. And that is to be faithful as a Christian and not hide your Christianity and receive persecution for it. But in this case, it's speaking of those who come to Christ through the 144,000 who face terrible persecution. And he's saying, look, they're blessed when they die a martyr's death. They're precious to me. Okay? And, and he says this, this say, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. It's in heaven, it's all recorded. They know, uh, those, who, those of heaven know what they've done for the Lord. They were faithful to God. We can only imagine with courage and comfort this passage will bring to the embattled, persecuted saints during the Great Tribulation. Clearly, God wants to encourage His people to be steadfast in times of trial. He wants us to focus on the fact that there's a blessed or blessed rest that we can enter into in heaven. It's ahead of us. 
So take what comes on this side of glory. Be faithful to God. Verse 14, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a gold crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. By the way, clouds are very significant in Scripture. They oftentimes, not all the time, but often they represent the visible presence of God. If you think back in the Old Testament, when the law was first given, there was a cloud that covered the mountain, right? Or when the law was given a second time, again a cloud appeared on the, at that time. Upon the completion of the tabernacle, a cloud covered the tabernacle. Whenever Moses, the tabernacle was always in the center of the camp of Israel. And all the tribes had their sections around the, tent, the, the tabernacle. And when they would see Moses walk towards the tabernacle and enter the tabernacle, they would see that cloud come over the tabernacle. Could you imagine living in a day, you're out in your front yard in front of, the, in front of your tent, and Moses is walking by, and he's saying hi, and he's heading towards the, ta the, the tabernacle. And as he's moving closer, this cloud forms over the tabernacle. God's presence was with him. Or whenever the Israelites were to break camp on their journey to the promised land, what would happen? A cloud led them on their way, right? When the temple was dedicated, the Bible says that a cloud actually came inside. The smoke filled the, the, the tabernacle, the temple, and they couldn't even, the priests couldn't even stand up and perform their duties. The cloud was so heavy inside that place. God's presence was with them. What a tragic sight it has to be for the Jews to see the glory of God leave the temple, leave the city of Jerusalem, leave the land of Israel because of their sinfulness. And that's what happened. And yet, God still does not give up on the Jew. For in the end, 144,000 Jewish evangelists are going to reach many thousands, millions with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many Jews will be saved. An incredible outpouring. You talk about a revival. But see, our revivals were held in tents where there was, you know, sawgrass or sawdust on the floor, or maybe they laid down some, uh, some grass of some type, some weed or something. And, and, and we were safe in that setting during that week of revival. In the great revival of the tribulation, there's nothing except the fire of persecution coming down upon them as they patiently endure knowing that in heaven there's a cloud forming and they will be under it. They will be in the presence of God. Amen? That's you and that's me. Verse 14 again, a sharp sickle in his hand. A lot of us struggle to think of Jesus holding a sickle in his hand. He does. And what's, an, what's another thing that's interesting here? He says, And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. That's an angel, it seems, it appears, telling Jesus what to do. That's not the case. What it is, this angel is speaking loudly for the earth to hear. And he's, he's speaking what Christ is about to do. So he who sat on the clouds swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. 
According to this passage, it would seem that there comes a point in the tribulation when salvation is no longer possible. That's when it happens. When the sickle comes down, that's it. Now it's too late to receive Christ Jesus. The, the hundred, by that time, the 144,000 have been called up into heaven. The two witnesses are with the Lord. The saints who came to Christ in the tribulation and were saved have been persecuted and martyred, and now they're in heaven. And now what we have left, we have a sickle coming down on the earth. Those who are not called up through persecution and martyrdom, who still live on the earth as a faithful witness of Christ, that sickle will not take them out, but it will take out those who have rejected the message of Christ. Then another angel came out of the temple, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, put in the sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. Those who are on the earth who are saved, let's take them, let's take them now. And God's about to bring a harvest like nothing you've ever seen. And He's going to bring a judgment upon those who have not received like nothing you've ever seen. Now, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus refers to wheat and tares. But here, and that was a harvest of grain, right? Here, the second harvest, this, in verse 18, it speaks of a harvest of grapes. This is speaking of the great winepress of the wrath of God. In other words, it's speaking of God's judgment. It's time to go ahead and bring judgment to the earth. You might not all be aware that this picture of judgment was the inspiration for the battle hymn of the Republic. Did you know that? The song that we've all sung? Listen to what it says. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vineyard where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. Verse 19 in the text, So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city. Now we have a reference of Christ. The first time that blood was shed. That blood was shed for the sinner to be saved on the cross. Whenever it mentions the city here, it's speaking of Jerusalem. Christ died on the cross outside the city of Jerusalem. The first time Christ shed His blood to cover our sins. The second time their blood will be shed in the winepress of God's wrath. Blood will be shed. No man will escape it. Verse 20, And blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. The blood resulting from the second, the last harvest, will flow from the valley of Armageddon down Jordan's Rift Valley past Jerusalem 180 miles to the city of Borzra. I want you to think about that. We're talking about a great battle of Armageddon where God goes up against the enemies of God and the blood is so deep that it's up to the horse's bridle as God's wrath is poured out. This God who is holy and just 
who's also loving and kind and merciful and gracious. But don't think for a second that God's love will, be, will trump His justice. It will never trump His justice. His love and mercy and grace will never trump His holiness and the justice of God. And justice will be served. And the Bible says the judge of the universe must do right. We have a Supreme Court, and I'm very thankful for the newest appointee to the Supreme Court. But I'm going to tell you right now, there's not a single Supreme Court member today who is truly just and righteous. They are all sinners, just like you and I. But God is nothing like them. When God meets out justice, He is right in His judgment. Not a single soul will be put in the winepress of God's wrath that does not deserve it. And you say, well, you know, what about the people here in this tribe that have never heard the gospel? Our God is good, the Bible says that, and our God is just. You need to rest in that. So, verse, or Isaiah, 16, 60, or Isaiah 63, verse 1 who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bozrah? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like who treads in the winepress? Well, who is this one? It's none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to lead the battle. And now I begin to understand that I have two options and that you have two options. I'm either going to drown in the horrific bloodbath of Armageddon or I can bathe in the gracious blood of my Savior, Jesus Christ. And if I'm bathed in His blood, then I will remain faithful and true to the end. And if somebody says they're saved and they don't remain faithful and true, they're not really saved. Those who are truly saved will endure to the end, Scripture says. Not because they work it and make it happen, but because they're truly saved by faith. <laughs> if you're truly saved by faith, God's got His mark on you. You will make it. You will make it. Let's close in prayer. Father, tonight we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the truth. We thank You for Your faithfulness to Your people. We see this over and over again in Scripture and nothing changes in Revelation. We thank you for these visions that were given John to go back to the church and a church that was under great persecution and give them confidence and encouragement and strength to endure with peace and patience their day of trial. May we also walk in the same confidence in our day of trial. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you, everybody. Pray that you have a wonderful uh, Friday, and we'll see you this Sunday. Remember that we are going to uh, do things a little differently in our service. We're going to have a section, one-fourth of our, of our seating will be uh, spread a little further, the rows, and, and people will sit there who are wearing masks and who want to have a little space, a little distance. We want to be sensitive and provide that area for them, and maybe that's you. Uh, just know that if you're going to sit in that area, you need to wear a mask, okay? And uh, God bless you. Have a great evening. We'll see you.